Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager. And we have uh, we have quite an episode here for you today because it involves uh, the sex life of an ocean bone worm, uh, particularly the Ossodax. Yeah, it was, um, I, you know, we cover a lot of things that some people would label as gross. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the first time that I think we've been researching something that my stomach kind of churned a little bit. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And I had just gotten done writing about autopsies for another one of our shows. And I was like perfectly fine talking about like cutting bones open and uh, r- lifting rib cages and removing organs from human beings. But then we get into the Osadax and it is a truly alien creature. I, it is something that would give nightmares mares to uh to hp lovecraft and uh you know the creators of uh, the alien movie you know yeah it is beautifully grotesque and uh we'll, and we'll make sure to include some uh, some images of this creature on the landing page uh, for this episode at stuff to blow your mind.com speaking of which we should probably take a moment just to mention all the places you can get the show and to interact with us yeah so robert just mentioned stuff to blow your mind.com that's our home base that's where you can find all the other stuff that we do other than the podcast and including the podcast we've got our blog post up there, the articles that we write, all links to our social media accounts and the videos that we've done as well. Uh, and you can get to those social media accounts where we are on Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr. Uh, and all those are blow the mind. That's our handle there. Now, I blogged in the past about some of the scientific findings regarding the Osadax, but I, uh, I kind of rediscovered it through this uh, fabulous new book, Sex in the Sea, Our Intimate Connection with Sex-Changing Fish, Romantic Lobsters, Kinky Squid, and Other Salty Erotica of the Deep by Mara J. Hart. I like the cover because the X is two seahorses rubbing up against each other. <laughs> it is pretty great. <laughs> and uh, at the end of this episode, uh, uh, Dr. Hart is actually going to chat with us for a few yeah. minutes about the Osadox as well as some other uh, uh, creatures that are covered in the book. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, the stuff that was inside here. And she had like a, a fairly irreverent tone uh, for, you know, an academic professional uh, when she was talking about just the, the general overall importance of sex in the ocean. Yeah, it's a great read. Dare I say a great beach read. <laughs> so before we get into the particulars of this creature itself, uh, we should describe the ecosystem, the specialized ecosystem in which it thrives, uh, something that uh, really scientists have only begun to understand uh, in the past few decades, something known as whale fall. Yeah, it, and I knew what this was, but I didn't know it was referred to as such as whale fall. And whenever I hear the term, I hear the theme song from the Bond movie Skyfall with Adele singing. And <laughs> oh, it's yeah. just, let the whale fall, <laughs> let it crumble, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's kind of, it kind of works. Yeah. It kind of works. Uh, maybe James Bond will go down to the bottom of the ocean and uh, swim around in some whale skeletons. Yeah, I mean, the, the falling and the crumbling, that that is exactly what's happening mm-hmm. because whales as uh, most people are familiar these are the largest animals on earth uh, in fact the largest animals that have ever lived and as such their bodies are like a, it's like a starship of biological riches right yeah i mean think about like how much sustenance they provide just floating even when they're alive actually yeah. but when, then when they die and they're at the bottom there they're just it's it creates a whole ecosystem yeah because th- these things are just yeah they're just an industry of just organic wealth right they're just they're just the thriving system, organic system and then for most of their adult lives they don't have any natural predators except for you know unless you want to count humans 
enormous creatures, long life, and then, of course, they die. And that's when the carcass sinks to the bottom of the ocean, down into this deep-sea wasteland, and here it becomes an oasis, and in a way a true oasis, as we'll uh, explain as well. Yeah, this is uh, interesting because uh, one thing, like, I, I don't know about you, but I never think of whales dying. I don't really think of any marine life, like, just kind of swimming along and outside of being devoured by a predator, just stopping and dying and floating to the bottom, right? Like, right. Well, because that's the way for so many things, in, in, for most creatures, right? It, uh, yeah. it's especially creatures in an ecosystem like the ocean, uh, because it's a, it's a, it's an eat or be eaten world. So something, most creatures are facing the, unavoidable fate of winding up in something's belly, probably killed by that creature. Exactly. Right? And whales are just so huge that, mm-hmm. it, that, you know, they don't really have that issue. Although we'll find out it's kind of interesting. Like we as human beings haven't really known a whole lot about this up until recently uh, because they float to the bottom. And it turns out like we, we may even have like uh, missed out like on an entire evolutionary process that's been going on at the bottom of the ocean based on these whale falls. Yeah, whale falls were first really truly recognized in the 1980s. They were, in, and this was following decades of of incidents in which uh, new species of mussels and mollusks were discovered on whale bones. Um, even even a small whale serves as just a, a luxurious bounty of nutrients. And so for a while we were discovering, like, oh, we just discovered a whole bunch of new species, yeah. uh, and it's all related to this whale corpse. And as it turns out, yeah, the dead whale serves as uh, just an, an explosion of bioeconomic activity. And this is cool, like an, like an actual oasis, they may serve as stepping stones for creatures traveling from one far-flung aquatic ecosystem to another. Yeah, and that gets into the Osidax that we're going to talk about primarily today. We're just, this is the preamble. We're setting you up. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, we haven't discovered Osidax until the last, like, what, 15 years? And, uh, they primarily think that's true because they're, they're moving around at the bottom. We're not at the bottom, at least not until recently. But they, they have these, like, way stations, basically, at all these whale carcasses. Yeah, and we're continuing to discover new varieties of Osidax, too. This yeah. is still a very active area of scientific exploration. So, at a whale fall, um, as, as we'll explain here, it, it, it attracts quite a rogues gallery of scavengers, both generalists who are just kind of, you know, passing by and like, oh, yeah. a dead whale, I'll take a bite of that. Yeah. And specialists who are like, dead whale, that's my thing. Uh, call me when it's ready for my expertise level. And that's our buddy, the Osidax. That's right. But before we get to the Osidax, so there's, there's several phases that go on with these whale falls, right? It's not just like thump whale falls and then just everybody in like one day just rah, 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 eats the whole thing, right? That's right. There are three identified stages. Uh, the first is the mobile scavenger stage. So this is pretty basic. The carcass hits the sea floor. Uh, the hagfish, which the hagfish itself mm-hmm. is a wonderful, grotesque creature. Yeah, yeah. It, we're really getting into some of the grotesqueries of marine life here. Yeah, I mean, this it's a scavenger's feast. This is when all the ghouls come out, right? Uh, the, the hagfish tunnel into the meat. Uh, just apparently just writhing hordes of them. Yeah. Sleeper sharks uh, come by. They grab some mouthfuls of the flesh and steadily the scra- scavengers strip away all the soft tissue, uh, leaving uh, basically eating a small human's weight in whale flesh a day. Wow. For up to two years, depending on the whale size. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, we should really like look into the hagfish because as I was doing the the research for this one, hagfish kept popping up over and over again. And I was like, that's pretty gnarly as well. Like, yeah, they are like, with their slime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Um, so there's a second stage, and that's the enrichment opportunist stage, right? And this is when you get these high-density, low-diversity communities of bristleworms and crustaceans. So these are really the bottom dwellers, mm-hmm. right? Uh, colonizing around. They're from the surrounding sediment, and they feed on the leftover blubber and the soft scraps for another two years. So we're looking at like a four-year process at this point. Right. And then comes the third and longest stage, the sulfophilic stage. And this lasts between 50 years and a solid century. Holy cow. Depending, again, on the whale size. Yeah. And this is all about the lipid-rich bones of the whales. Specialized bacteria uh, anaerobically break down lipids containing the bones. And this is also where... The Osidax uh, begins to show up. But before we get into that, I want to mention the Oasis theory of whale fall real quick. So given all of this uh, that we've discussed here, the, the, the phase and just the, the long period of time it takes to completely break down a whale carcass, according to marine ecologist Craig Smith, around 69,000 great whales die every year. So there might be uh, 690,000 skeletons of the nine largest whale species out there at any given time. Just all over the place. And yeah. these are just all little communities. This is very um, China Mieville. I don't know if you've ever read any of his like fantastic mm-hmm. oh, yeah. boss log fiction, but like I think in one of his stories, like the city had the the city that all these creatures live in is built under the bones of a giant uh, creature. Like, uh, And then they also like at one point, like harness a giant whale like thing uh-huh. and have it pull them around and it dies. And then they have to go down and look at its core and everything. It's kind of interesting. Huh. Uh, Guillermo del Toro did kind of a, a, a neat take on that in uh, the Pacific Rim movie. Oh, yeah. It's kind of more alluded yeah. to than explored, but just the thriving economy mm-hmm. of a massive dead creature. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it, those were very similar. Um, so, all right, Osadax, before we get into the details, I'm going to this is a very visual thing. And so I printed <laughs> out a photo of an Osadax worm here. And it, we're going to try to, I guess, describe it to you from our perspective. But you should certainly go do an image search. Uh, O-S-E-D-A-X. These are really weird looking creatures. And I guess the best place to start is it looks like a cloud, right? Like yeah. kind of like a pink red cloud. It, I, I'm assuming those are like the filaments, but just at the scale, it looks like a cloud of, of mist, uh, and, and little bubbles and stuff all floating around on one end and coming out of that is one tentacle tendril thing that then branches off into several other tentacles. Uh, and they're sort of translucent and pink looking and scary. Like it looks, it looks like a Lovecraft monster, like something yeah. somebody would draw for like a, a Call of Cthulhu campaign. Yeah, and it's pretty crazy that we're also recording an episode today about um, the Medusa Nebula. So you yeah. have a nebula photo printed out as well, and there's actually a fair amount of comparison to be made. And the scale, the the scale is so uh, so different, so oh, infinitely yeah. different that it's it's mind boggling. But we've seen them both because we're humans and we're industrious. Yes. <laughs> and speaking of scale. Uh, when we're talking about the size of this creature, we're looking at uh, a centimeter or less in length. Yeah, they're tiny. Yeah, it's a, a finger length. And let's most. keep in mind, that's the female, right? Yes. The females are a centimeter in length. We'll get to the males later, but they're much tinier. Now, the name ex- itself uh, derives from the Latin for bone devourer. 
because, of course, that's what it's done. It does. But you'll also uh, find it described, of course, as a, as, a, as a mere ocean bone worm or a zombie worm. Yeah. And, and so the Latin breakdown of this, os is Latin for bone and edax is Latin for devour. This mm-hmm. is like the most metal animal in the sea, I think. Oh, like, yeah. There's yeah, surely got to be some metal band called Osidax by now. Uh, but, hey, we've only known about them for 14 years. So they were discovered in 2002, uh, first described in 2000. 2004 from Monterey Bay, uh, where they found a whale there that was uh, experimented on. And then they also did further experiments in Sweden and Japan and Antarctica. So in 2003, scientists purposely sank a dead mink whale down 120 meters off the Swedish coast. And they monitored this whale fall. Uh, and so, you know, like we just mentioned, whale falls really, the ecosystem goes on for up to 100 years. So who knows? They're probably still monitoring it. But uh, within, you know, that span of time, they did see that uh, by recovering the bones in 2004 that there were these worms in the bones, and these were the Osidax worms. And they were usually, up until then, only found in the Pacific. So this was kind of a surprise. They didn't think they were going to find them in northern waters like this. Then in 2013, they do the same thing, this mink whale test, right? I don't know where you just get a hold of a mink whale carcass, (laughs) but who who knows? Uh, And they um, repeated this in Antarctica. Uh, and they dropped it right off the coast of Antarctica. And the same thing there, too. They found that there were Osidax worms there as well. Now, it, this is an, an important distinction. The Osidax is a genus, right? These were all different species. Every time they were doing these tests, they were finding different species of Osidax. That's right. And I believe currently there are at least 11 known uh, species of Osidax. And, of course, that's changing uh, as uh, research continues to to, uh, to roll out. Yeah. So they're really, uh, at this point, we think they're found all over the world uh, at depths around 4,000 meters, which I'll do a quick conversion. That's 13,123 feet. Um, and they're they're real gross. Um, <laughs> they're covered in mucus. Um, in fact, I, I've heard some uh, or heard I've read some articles that refer to them as snot flowers. Have, did you see oh, this? No, I didn't see. Yeah, the snot flowers. apparently like the, the part of them that's not boring into the bones with the part that's exposed to the seawater. Uh, it's covered in this like mucus like bubble. Uh, maybe that's what we're seeing here with the cloud stuff that we're looking at. And uh, and because of that mucus, some people call them snot flowers. Oh, I, I'm going to stick to bone worms and osidax. Yeah. I mean, I, no matter how you go, they're kind of gross. Like one of the things I was thinking about yesterday is like, and this is where mine, my mind goes when we research stuff like this is like, what if you could take an osidax, uh, and make it, uh, you, you make it larger and then you speed up its life process and then you throw it at your enemies. So, uh, you've got like a Osidax grenade, right? And you, <laughs> you throw it at somebody. They get splattered with Osidax worms and the worms just start burrowing right into your bones. And you've got all these little snot flowers sticking out of you. That would be a pretty bad way to go, right? Uh, that would be a bad way to go. So these, uh, guys or gals to be technical <laughs> about the whole thing. Yeah, the boars uh, are mainly gals. Yeah. They are, they are mouthless and gutless. They have no digestive tract. They have no anus. Uh, and they have uh, little appendages that stick out uh, into the uh, water column for gas exchange, but can be retracted uh, into a mucus tube if disturbed. Ah, uh, the mucus tube. Yeah. Blech. Now, on the, the real business end, though, you have tunnel. They, they, they tunnel into whalebone with green, fleshy, 
roots they're often described as like not quite pinnacles more like roots yeah, yeah. Um, they grow into the bone and they break it down so it's in a way it 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 behaves a lot like a plant uh in in its feeding uh technique here yeah and that's how hart kind of describes it in her book as yeah. well yeah, it's kind of taking a, I think she, she says it, it takes a, a page from the, the plant playbook, if you will. Yeah. So this is vile. Just when you think about it, right? Like these tentacles drill into the bones, then they create a root network. And then on the outside, presumably, I guess, like drawing in nutrients or something from the seawater around it, there's this mucousy cloud gross tube thing. Uh, yeah, they're pretty horrifying. I have a quote here from Hart uh, in Sex and the Sea. She says, even more strange, these roots grow from around the ovisac, like a fibrous network of food factory sprouting out of the worm equivalent of fallopian tubes. Yeah, that would definitely uh, upset Lovecraft even more. Yes. The, like, the, just the genuine feminine nature of these things would also be upsetting for him. So you got two for two in the Lovecraft column, the, uh, the sea life, uh, and then also just his general fear of women. Yeah, and we haven't even gotten to the acid yet, <laughs> oh. because the worms use a, a proton pump to secrete acid through the roots into the bones. According to a 2013 Swedish study, uh, the creature pumps out this bone-melting acid into the tunnel as it tunnels its way in after all that delicious collagen and all those lipids. Uh, but here's where it gets even more amazing. Uh, according to, to this particular study, the process is very similar to how mammals repair and remodel bones. Specifically oh, humans. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's it's only in reverse. So it, essentially they're ungrowing the bones uh, <laughs> oh, with their uh, with their acid, which is, uh. is wonderful. Yeah, and it's so it's similar to humans uh, in the way that like our kidneys basically handle blood and urine function, right? But it's just the opposite. Uh, yeah, yeah. The the, the acid secreting enzymes you find are, are are similar in some ways to those found in human kidneys uh, that handle blood and urine functions. Mm, okay. But then, of course, how do they actually consume the nutrients? Scientists are still studying this area of osidox biology, but it seems that the symbiotic bacteria in the worms plays a key role. It's possible that the symbiotic bacteria metabolize the bone-derived collagen into other organic compounds and that the worm just digests the bacteria after it feeds. So it's, yeah, it, it, imagine this situation yeah. where the, the symbiotic relationship with the bacteria inside it, the bacteria is benefiting from the initial feeding and then the osidox is feeding on the bacteria inside it. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, clean. Uh, we can say that much yeah. outside of it being covered in mucus, but you, you gotta, when you see something like this, we discover something like this, you gotta go like, wow, you know, this is one of those instances where like we're looking for alien life. We wonder what alien life is going to look like. And then we've got this yeah. just sitting on our back doorstep down at the bottom of the ocean. And you gotta wonder like how, how did such a thing evolve? And also like the, the cleanliness of the mechanism, right? Like the, the perfection of this mechanism. Um, they're, they're apparently related to those same, you know, we've, we've talked about these a lot on the show before, like those giant tube worms that live near like the superheated vents. Mm, yeah. Uh, they're like that. And this gives more rise to that theory. What I was talking about earlier, uh, not, it's, it's similar to the Oasis theory, the idea of whale falls as service stops, right? That these life forms are all just kind of moving along the ocean floor. So maybe they evolved or adapted out of those tube worms, right? And then somehow, you know, found their first whale fall service stop. But they really evolved alongside whales, which is pretty fascinating. Uh, and here's where it gets interesting, right? 
because human beings have been devastating the whale population for the last, I don't know what, 200 years, mm-hmm. uh, that there's a theory that this has curtailed the activity of creatures like the Osadax worm uh, because there's less for them to feed on the ocean floor. So it's possible that there has been an extinction of certain bottom-dwelling organisms that we've never seen, and there's no evidence of them left over. Huh. Yeah, because you remove a whale from the ocean, you process it, uh, for whaling purposes, yep. you are stealing its environment from it. It's a uh, right. it's a, it, ephemeral environment. So maybe there is something even grosser and weirder devouring devouring <laughs> whale bones before uh, we started hunting whales. But now uh, we don't know. We don't know what was down there. Yeah. Now, so there's a lot of genetic evidence that really gets into this whole idea that they they co-evolved with whales. That they are essentially about forty million years old. Uh, and then there's some, some genetic evidence to back this up. But according to a 2015 study from the University of Plymouth, there's actually fossil evidence that the Osidox, uh fed on bones of marine reptiles during the age of dinosaurs. So that's at least 100 million years ago, as opposed to 40 to 45 million years ago. Yeah, I read an article about this, and they said that the scientists involved used a CT scanner on a pleosaur and a sea turtle fossils. And they found the exact same boreholes that we find from Osidax worms in whale bones now, they match the patterns almost exactly. Uh, so it's possible, here's another thing that will blow your mind, uh, <laughs> It's possible that there were skeletons down there of species, giant uh, water species that we had we didn't discover because the Osadax worms and similar entities j- devoured the whole thing. Oh wow! Yeah, so, they're cleaning up the evidence. Yeah, and they're not part of. We don't have those to be part of the fossil record now, so we don't know. Maybe there were other things like pleosaurs down there. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Plesiosaur. And just a reminder to everybody, uh, yeah, the, the fossil record is by its very nature incomplete. Uh, especially, the circumstances have to be just right for fossilization to take place. Yeah. Uh, it's something that, uh, that keeps scavengers from completely erasing it, for instance. So. Yeah. We actually just did a brain stuff episode about that. Uh, I believe Joe was involved in the writing of that. It's about why some skeletons become fossils and some don't. Okay. Um, so if you want to learn yeah, more about we'll, that, go check out brain stuff. We'll make sure to include a link to that on the landing page for this episode at stuffwithblowyourmind.com. But hey, let's go ahead and take a quick break at this point. Hey, everybody, in this day and age, you have to have a professional-looking website. It's how we represent ourselves to the world around us. It's uh, it's your calling card. But, hey, not everybody out there has uh, access to a, a big-wig developer or has the coding experience to just go out and build something from scratch. And that is where Squarespace comes in. Squarespace gives you the tools you need, the the interface that you can handle to build a professional-looking website. Um, it is a great option. It's a perfect excuse to go out and build that website that you've always been wanting to build. And, hey, you can uh, if you sign up now using our Special code, mind blown. You can get 10% off your first order and you can actually snag uh, your uh, domain name for a year. So, again, that's Squarespace, mind blown. Go out and build that website. All right, we're back. All right, so. You have a great phrasing system. I think that you got maybe from heart uh, for this particular section where we're going to talk about the sex lives of the Osadax boneworm. You call him a harem of the Osadax. Yes, yeah. Sounds like a 
Doctor Who episode title. It, it does, or, or like a, a grown-up Doctor Seuss episode. Um, right. Yeah. So the yeah the harem of the Osadox. It's um I believe Hart was the one to use the the term uh, harem, or at least that's where I saw it first. Uh, so remember that quote earlier from her about the fibrous network of food factories sprouting out of the worm equivalent of fallopian tubes. Yeah. Well, that yeah. probably makes you think, and we already alluded to the fact that that Osadox, as we typically encounter them are all female. Yeah. So where are the males? That was a question scientists asked as well. Males had to exist because they looked at the females and they contained plenty of sperm. Yeah. Or they seemed to contain plenty of sperm cells. And then they found their answer. Those were not male sperm cells at all. Those were tiny dwarf males, a harem of microscopic males inside the female. And yeah. each of these males is a hundred thousand times smaller than the female imprisoning them. So imagine this, because we just talked about the scale, right? So there's uh, females are about a centimeter long, mm-hmm. and then the males are each a hundred thousand times smaller than that, and all live inside of a female. Yeah, it's it it might be the most outrageous example of sexual dimorphism on the planet. And it's well beyond the whole like like think of the the old uh, B movie Attack of the 50-foot woman, you know? Like <laughs> right, yeah. There are yeah. certain scenarios you can I see can't where you're going imagine, with this, right. right? So like a 100 well 50 feet tall may not even be big enough. She yeah, have to not, be 100,000 feet tall. Yeah. Like yeah. even that is is nothing compared to the uh, sexual dimorphism we see with uh, with most osidox worms. Yeah, and I guess just thinking about about it from the uh, general perspective, uh, as we humans normally do, of our own, uh, you know, experience, right? So, thinking about our reproductive process, I don't, I still don't quite see how that works. If there's a hundred thousand males living inside one female, how does that work? I wouldn't even think that their sperm would be able to 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 do anything. What's the theory there? Well, it breaks down like this, apparently. So. Larval osidox worms arrive at a whale fall. They okay. cover the bones just completely. They sink their roots in. They feed. They grow. They produce eggs. Later, larval osidox worms arrive, and they land on the larger established females. It's already coated. There's no room left to establish, right? Okay. These fam- females then transform into males. Okay. Okay. So we've got, they're able to, um, do like some kind of gender morphing. Yeah. In, in their larval stage, they morph into males and they crawl inside the females and they start producing sperm. Wow. So this is an example of environmentally controlled sex determination. We see, uh, varying degrees of this occur in many other animals, uh, and also in fictional places like Jurassic Park. Uh, yeah. May oh yeah. Well, maybe they right. Maybe that was. You still haven't seen Jurassic World yet, have oh, you? Oh, I have. I have. Oh God. Exactly. Well, yeah. Maybe that's how they created their super duper dinosaur in that or whatever. Yeah. Like, wasn't it able to like self replicate or something like that? Oh no, that's from the original Jurassic. Yeah, that's Park, from the original. Right? Yeah, They've was... got some Osadax worm genes in there or something, right? Oh, I'd, I'd like to see that. Here's something that I read about the 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 male transformation that. Uh, Made it even weirder for me, okay? This is the description. When they become male, a long gonadal duct extends from their rear and out of a pore just above their brain. So they basically become little penises, right? Yeah, all development uh, at this stage. Again, it's, they're trapped in this larval stage, and all yeah. development, save testes development, just halts from that point on. Because they're there. They've arrived. The, if The, the yeah. male is just a... A necessary mutation that you need right. to deliver uh, its share of the reproductive uh, package. 
the package is delivered, just cut out everything else. What it's else does it need to do? But live super efficient. It's incredibly efficient. Yeah. Can you imagine if our lives were that much easier, right? Like we didn't have to go through the whole like, <laughs> like courting and mating rituals and all, it, all the, the cultural stuff that we've set up around sex. It's just like, oh, there are already women here. Okay. I'm going to turn into a man. Yeah. It would, it, life would be a lot easier. It would, it would make things, uh, easier. Maybe a little interesting. So the males carry on inside the female. They eventually die. So she has to keep obtaining new males for the harem, if okay. you will. And by the end of her life, a female Osidox worm may have several hundred males inside her. But then, of course, the whalebone riches eventually give out and everything dies. Yeah. So then this is where I have, and I'd love, you know, I know that this study is just in its infancy, but I'd love to figure this out. So how do they then get to another whale fall, right? Like if they, their whole lives are spent on this one set of bones and they're going through their reproductive system that way, I wonder how the other ones then, then move on and find their way to another set of uh, whale bones. Well, uh, I would imagine the larvae have to set off across the desert, right? We're back to that Maybe. oasis scenario. Yeah, they yeah. have to drift on until they find. Yeah, they the just next get carried ball. on a current or something like yeah. that until they land in the right place. Yeah, and it's my understanding that uh, this is also an area where the research is still ongoing to uh, to figure it out because it's one thing to be able to study them at the site where you know they're going to be. Yeah, but uh, in, in, in other mysteries about their reproductive cycle, again across several different species of osidox, remain. And but, they're and they're still like this is. We're really in like the first, not even two decades of Osadax research, right? Yeah. And so, uh, tons of new species are being discovered all the time. Like, and I, like they, they give them like kind of cool names. Like I think it's like Osadax Antarcticus or something like that. Like the one where they found in Antarctica. Uh, and I, I actually read that there are some where the males are, are not that tiny. There are some species that have been discovered where the males are a little bit larger, but we don't really fully understand this whole thing just yet. Some of it's guesswork. So I, I imagine, you know, as we move on over the next couple of years, we're going to keep hearing more and more driblets of Osadax research coming out. Yeah, that uh, the one you alluded to already, uh, that, uh, the, uh, that one came from a 2014 study from the University of California, uh, San Diego, where they uh, they revealed this new species where the, the males were larger and they can move and actually consume bone on their own. They can stretch out their bodies to find new worms. Oh, okay. And they say this all amounts to uh, an evolutionary reversal to an ancestral state. So the genes for the larger males were still there, and this species of Osadox employs them, um, which is which is interesting. Um, Again, this is an area they're still exploring, but I wonder to what extent that has to do with the the species having to to roll with the with the changes in the environment, such as mm-hmm. uh, uh, decades and decades of fewer whale carcasses out there. Well, maybe we'll be able to get some of these answers uh, from our discussion with uh, Dr. Hart based on her book. Now, there's a whole section about the Osadax worms in this book, but I got to tell you, this book is like way more than that. I mean, it's about the sex lives of everything that's under the sea. Uh, I, I'm hearing Sebastian the lobster from, uh, from, <laughs> from the Little Mermaid in the back of my head. So um, maybe we can ask her about some of those things and get some answers. Well, hey, welcome to the show. We just finished discussing the Osidax and its uh, curious mating and feeding habits here on the show based on a handful of papers and your coverage uh, of the, the Osidax uh, chronicles in your book. Um, so Wonderful. tell us, where does the sex life of the Osidax rank on uh, the spectrum of the beautifully weird in your book? <laughs> I would say that it ranks 
Definitely in the very, very weird category. <laughs> in fact, I often, I often use it as an example when I talk about how sex is so important and, and, and really the driver of diversity on the planet, but that some of these systems, when we're looking at them, we don't even realize, you know, what it is that we're looking at for quite some time because it's so different from what we think of as sex. Orthodox is my example of that. It is just, so completely foreign to, you know, first of all, human reproductive habits, but certainly even mammals and most of the animals most people are familiar with. So I would say it's it's definitely on the really strange side of the spectrum. <laughs> um, but what's really beautiful about it is it does give us a little bit more insight into this idea of, you know, female control, really, and a little bit more of this female dominant side of the sexual equation. And and often we tend to think that sex is, and and we see this a lot with mammals, again, that males tend to um, seem to be dominating things and controlling the situation. And so here's a wonderful example of how females are really, um, really the ones in charge (laughs) with what's going on. That's a perfect uh, lead-in for my next question, Mara. So in the book, you refer to Osadax males as being sex slaves. Do we know yet mm-hmm. if they serve any other purpose other than reproduction? We don't. And because they are sort of stuck in this uh, sort of prepubescent state, they you know, they can't um, really engage in the world um, in in many other ways. Now, I should say there's one caveat here. So there is one Osidax, and this is why I refer to it as the Osidax Chronicle, because I think, you know, what we're finding out about these species just keeps evolving over, you know, very rapidly over time. We're finding out more and more. So there is one species where the males are independent, yeah, is so, this the one that uh, was just discovered off of San Diego in 2014? Yes, it's Oxida. Uh, I think it was San Diego. So if that, I'm going to say a hesitant yes, but yes, 2014. The males are larger, right? Triopus. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they, um, <laughs> they, so they're they're an exception to the rule, and there's some really neat things about that story in and of itself, but. You know, to answer your question uh, around, you know, do we know if they serve any other purpose? They live off their yolk sac. Um, so they, they, you know, are independent in terms of their nutrition. And it seems like the only truly functional component is their mature testes. And they just sort of shoot the sperm out through these tubes that erupt from the tops of their head and live inside the female. So um, I don't know when they die, whether or not the female can make use of the little bit of, you know, organic matter that they yeah. <laughs> that they leave behind. They're so, so tiny, but again, she can have harems of hundreds. So this is complete speculation, but maybe, but again, because the osidex, the, the females have no mouth and no gut, and they're really just subsisting off these weird symbiotic bacterial relationships they have, I don't know if they can digest the males. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're contributing um, genetic genetic input, and I don't know yeah. if there's much else. Um, as specifically regarding that other species we were talking about, the, the one with mm-hmm. the larger males, how do mm-hmm. they breed the same way, even though the males are larger? They're just, there's less of them, I'm assuming? 
Right. So um, they, what happens is the males can independently, you know, they have these similar root structures to the females. So they will independently uh, attach to the bone of the worm and they grow a similar size tube. And then they basically reach, They we think, uh, again, this was a really new discovery. So there's ongoing research here. But we think that they use their tube kind of as a giant phallus. Okay. And they reach that tube into the other females around them and deposit the sperm. Because for for what we can understand thus far, especially given the, the uh, females that have the dwarf males, they, they're they internally fertilized, right? So the sperm is released inside the female, mm-hmm. it fertilizes her eggs, and then she releases these fertilized eggs into the, into the sea. And so we think that what happens with the males is that they sort of arc their tube over to the females nearby and can deposit the sperm that way. But again, this is pretty, pretty new stuff. Um, but I'll check sort of in the background as we chat here. But yeah, I think sure, that no that's problem. part of the name is that the, the name has something to do with having this oh, okay. sort of body that serves as a, uh, a phallus. But I could, I could be mistaken. Now, um, now I have... Um uh, I remember reading that uh, there's a, there, there's some thought that this is kind of a, a reversion to a, a more archaic form in this particular species mm-hmm, of Ocidox. Mm-hmm. Is Yeah. yeah I, I couldn't help but wonder, does this have anything to do with the impact of human whaling activities on their their naturally occurring ecosystems, or, or am I jumping to conclusions there? Right. So that's it's a good question, and um, the answer is likely no, and this is because it would be very fast in evolutionary mm-hmm. time to have a species be able to do this really pretty significant reversal. So basically, when we see in a species, this it's called patamorphs. This is what the males are defined as in, in science. And it means a larval state, but with mature reproductive parts. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's really weird, right? You have yeah. something that's basically frozen in its development, but... For whatever reasons, it you know in the case of Ocidax, the testes can mature, and that takes um, some pretty significant uh, selection for that kind of a, a male-female pattern to evolve. And to reverse that, this is the only case where um, scientists thus far have found a species that has a sister species, you know, a closely related cousin or sister species that came from. The, the sort of the ancient ancestor had the patamorph, had this, this arrested development in the males, but then evolved a species that, where that male was actually able to break free from that kind of, um, those, those, those bonds and actually bloom into a fully mature, independent living individual. So that would have taken much longer than the, you know, 200 to 300 years of whaling pressure that we have put on. And it's not just whales. So Ocidex can live off of bones of other species too. They've been found on carcasses of other animals. Okay. So it's, you know, they're used to these ephemeral food supplies. So I don't think so. Um, so I, there, there is a, a rationale that they, they think might be behind this. So, 
but but just to jump in, so I, I was remembering correctly, yay, which is that the Priapus, the species name for this independent for the species with the independent male, comes from the Greek for um, one of the gods of procreation. So it, it basically has to do with personification of the phallus. Okay. So the fact that they have these these tubes that they are likely using to insert into the female um, is is kind of where the name name came from. So another like, and I know I recognize that like that we are just barely scratching the surface of what we know about this genus. But um, mm-hmm. do you do you have any insight into when a female Osidax dies? Do the males inside her die as well, or do they move on to like another female host? So they're still trying to figure out, you know, what um, for where these males you know, come from and what sort of the uh, dispersal is, uh, I guess, of the larvae, you know, and the eggs as they go out. Yeah. But basically the males have very short lifespans compared to the females because, again, they are subsisting entirely off their yolk sac. Right. So, again, they're they're larvae, right? And so once they run out of that yolk sac, they die. So she's constantly having to collect more and more males as she's on on these whales um, and, and, uh, feeding off these, these, this whale carcass. And again, you know, I, I would have to ask um, Dr. Ralph, I'm not sure what, what the lifespan of the female is. I would imagine it's a few weeks, maybe a few months mm-hmm. until they've literally scavenged everything. Yeah. Um, and, the, and they don't move. So each female is sort of rooted to her spot on the whale. And so once she is sort of, um, suck dry all the nutrients in those bones, then she's got, she's got nothing left. Uh, oh, to fascinating. And I'm not, yeah. So she can't, she can't move location. They sort of root down, or at least we, we think they sort of root down and they, these huge colonizations, they degrade, um, the carcass. It, it deteriorates, you know, just like, um, we see with, uh, you know, bugs, and you know, uh, you know, ants doing on, dead bugs or things like that. They mm-hmm. kind of chew them down. And then when there's nothing left, that's it. And so, but the males, because they're subsisting entirely off of the the food that they get from their mamas, <laughs> they go much quicker. So we know that as the female grows and grows in size and age, her harem gets bigger and bigger, but she's also having to replace the males that have expired inside her. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, in your book, you mention uh, a couple of other sea creatures that are known for uh, their sexual dimorphism and their unique treatment of males, uh, including one of one of my favorites uh, from reading about in the past. Can you amaze our listeners with um, a, at least a brief tale of the anglerfish? Ah, sure, the anglerfish. So, anglerfish are wonderful deep sea fish, and there is one group of anglerfish. Uh, in particular, that have this really unique sexual strategy. And the males in this group are born with no ability to feed themselves. So they're these tiny little fish, often no bigger than, you know, half the size of your your thumbnail, or sorry, your, your knuckle, you know, sort of an inch, maybe less. And they're swimming through the ocean, and they have fantastic sense of smell. And they are on a mission because they can't feed themselves. And so they have to find the female before they run out of steam. So they're shooting around in the deep sea in the dark trying to find these females. And the females are much, much larger than they are. And the females are hunters. 
And they're called anglerfish because they have these structures off the tops of their heads that often have a bioluminescence or glow that attracts fish to them. And then they have these giant mouths and they sort of open their mouths and suck, suck these little fish in. And, and so they're, they're these sort of ambush predators of the deep. And they can look pretty spooky, lots of big teeth. And these tiny little males are swimming around and they're honing in on the female by her scent. And when they find the female, rather than being uh, intimidated by her, her kind of menacing look, they are wildly attracted and they zoom into her and then they actually will, will bite onto her side or her belly. And over this really cool <laughs> process, the male will then basically his, his jaws will disintegrate. His, um, the, his forehead will sort of sink into her body. Their tissues fuse so that their circulatory systems actually connect and become one. And he sort of becomes this, um, parasitic extension of the female. So his independent life disappears and he is now literally physically fused to the female. Many of his internal organs disintegrate except for his testes. His testes continue to grow and develop, and they become these fantastically large sperm factories for the female. In this way, the female now has attached to her basically sperm on demand. So in some species, we've been able to see that when the male attaches, or we think that at the point when the male attaches, it triggers some chemical and hormonal transformations inside the female and that often the female will not mature and start reproducing, start producing eggs until the male has attached. And then once that happens, it's sort of like the signal to her that she's got this reliable sperm supply. So it's time for her to put the energy into making the eggs. And this works out really, really well for both of them, even though it might seem a little, um, a little bit like the male gets the short end of the stick. <laughs> it works out great because in the deep sea, it's very hard to find a mate. Food is very, very scarce. And the ability to actually pump out lots of offspring is pretty rare. So here you have both male and female connected in a way that ensures that as a female releases her eggs, the sperm is right there to fertilize those eggs. The male knows his sperm is going to be put to good use. And they can kind of, you know, swim off into into the darkness doing doing the deed when when it's needed. That is utterly insane. That's, that's even crazier maybe than the Osadax one. So, so I have to ask now then, like, I'm, I'm jumping ahead on our notes a little bit here, but so based on that story, what is the mm-hmm. weirdest creature you covered in your book? Any, it sounds to me like that, that might be weirder than the Osadax, but is there anything even weirder? Gosh, it's, oh my goodness, it's, so the sand tiger's reproductive strategy is really, weird and kind of gruesome so they're but they're not a weird species right so they're, yeah. they're, they're sharks um but they have some really funky stuff going on um there's you know there's the species of tinafore which is a small plankton it, it's um they're known as comb jellies and they're hunters in the plankton and they're related to jellyfish but they have this really weird thing where it looks like the egg and the, sorry the the nucleus of their eggs actually selects the sperm. Oh, which wow. is totally crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's right. It's, it's, it's a part of a single cell. So it's like 
you know, the nucleus is an organelle. So it'd be like imagining your liver is picking your date, <laughs> right? That's wacky. Yeah. Totally wacky. So um, they're a really interesting story. And they're one of the few exceptions to the rule, which is normally, by and large, when an egg, um, eggs work really hard to ensure that only one sperm makes it in through their sort of outer barrier. If they have multiple sperm, and it's called polyspermy, it's normally fatal to an egg. So this tenophore has this completely opposite approach whereby, you know, three, four sperm may enter the egg and then the, the egg's nucleus like kind of moves around and it, it literally will go and check out, move to each of the sperm within that cell, looking at them doing something, we don't know what, and then sort of picks the one that it actually will fuse with. And that's just, to me, that blew my mind. That yeah, was yeah. so weird. And, you know, this is operating not even at the sperm-egg interface, but within this single cell. So that was pretty cool. Um, I'm trying to think. Other other weird ones. Um, Dinophilus is another worm, and they make the sort of, parasitic male thing even more extreme in that they lay two kinds of eggs, a large egg and a small egg. The large ones are females and the small ones are males. And they're laid inside this cocoon and the eggs hatch and the males will mate with their sisters inside the cocoon mm -hmm. and then they die. And that's it. Hmm. And then the females break free of the cocoon and go off to kind of live and lay their eggs, which have been fertilized by their brothers. So that's a little bit, you know, yeah, I think unusual. This, I think this lead, that one leads well into our question about oceanic orgies. Yeah, as as much ah. as, <laughs> as as much as human beings can gauge these things, which species uh, hosts the most interesting oceanic orgy? Most interesting. And I, I'll, I'll add a sidebar mm. onto this that might help out, which is that um, yeah. I, I'm curious about, you mentioned sea orgy tourism in the book. And so I'm kind of curious <laughs> about that as well. Like, like maybe it's yeah. more along the lines of like, which uh, species orgies are, are people going to watch? Which are the best to watch? Okay, so that's good. So of interest to us, so some of the most dynamic and really sort of exciting I think are in species such as um, snappers or grouper. Um, and in those species, let's take Nassau grouper, for, for example. So this is an endangered species, first of all. So it is really rare and really, really cool to get to see a spawning aggregation because in one location, you might have three or 4,000 fish that you know, are the only three or 4,000 fish, say, for an entire island. And this is some work that the Grouper Moon Project has been working on um, off of Little Cayman. That's the last large remaining spawning aggregation we know of in the Caribbean for this species. Huh, okay. They used to gather, they used to gather in tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands. We're now down to about three to 4,000, about about six, seven years ago, that population was 8,000 and fishers over the course of about three, four years hammered it down to half, which is why it is now being studied and protected. Um, but what's really cool to watch is that it's happening actually, what was the full moon was only about two days ago, I think. So literally as we're talking, these fish are leaving their home territories where they normally stay all year round. They're very aggressive fish, so they don't tend to play nicely with their fellow Nassau grouper. And at this one window of time for about a week, they leave 
their home territories, they change their coloration. So they'll shift from sort of this desert camo into a two-toned color where they're sort of dark brown or black on top and white-bellied. Some of the females will go all black. So I, I like to think of this as their black tie affair. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they're, in, they're in their good duds. And, and it's probably a cue. It's a signal that like, hey, I'm friendly now. Like, I get it. We're going to get together. We're going to have some action. It is okay to, to hang out by me. Because otherwise, right, you have these really aggressive fish. And sure. if you were to approach fish who's not in the mood, that's not going to help your orgy be very uh, productive. <laughs> so they change their colors and they they create these like caravans. And they flow down to the southern tip of the island. And they sort of will leave their territories and, and hover at the edge of the reef, and they'll wait until other NASA groupers sort of start passing by, and they'll sort of feed into this funnel, kind of like tributaries off a river. You know, they're all, like, going downstream. And we know this from acoustic data. So many of these um, individuals have been tagged, and the researchers have put listening stations around the island. And so they can see through listening where they're going because there are these pings, and they can pick up the fish as they go, and they get bigger and bigger in their schools, and they caravan down south, and they form these giant swirling balls. Like like I said, three to 4,000 fish in other species. It's even, even higher, thousands and thousands. And right around dusk, for whatever reason, orgies in the sea are often coordinated with, with sunset. Very romantic, I guess. <laughs> they, um, it helps them kind of, truly, it helps them um, coordinate their timing because that's a signal they can all sort of tune into. And they'll get really agitated. They'll start swimming around and bumping up against one another. And then the females, their, their bellies will be swollen with eggs. I mean, they literally look pregnant. And the females will all of a sudden start to sort of lead these um, smaller groups out from the big swirling school and they rock it up towards the surface. And when they're within about 20 to 30 feet of the surface, they'll do this giant arc and at the peak of their sort of, sort of climb, they'll release a giant puff of eggs. The males then will follow the females frantically trying to get as close to her as possible and they'll release their sperm uh, right after she releases the eggs. And so you get these geysers of fish erupting out of this swirling school and these huge puffs of egg and sperm that start to turn the water really cloudy. And it's just, it's really, it's really crazy. And and one of the researchers I talked to, a gentleman named Brad Erisman, said it's like organized chaos <laughs> because you have these fish swirling around below. You're surrounded by all these thousands of fish. They're rushing up to do these little spawning bursts. Meanwhile, Depending on where you are and, and which species you're studying, there's a lot of predators in this in this space too because these fish are very preoccupied. Right? Oh. They're they're focusing on getting their deed done. So it's a perfect Another time to pick them it. off. Yeah, other fish take advantage of that. There are also lots of filter feeding animals, whether it's whale sharks or smaller fish, who feed off the sperm and the eggs. Hmm. Right? This is like. A abundance of energy and fatty goodness that is just being cast out into the sea. And so not all of those sperm and eggs find one another and make the next generation. Many of them get gobbled up. <laughs> so you've got all these fish darting in, whether it's to hit the fish or to hit the eggs and sperm, and then you've got the, the spawners themselves going off. Oftentimes, these are multiple species aggregations. 
So you'll have one species kind of concentrated in a small area and another species somewhere else. And they might have slightly different timing or slightly different locations, but they're all kind of erupting somewhat near each other. So it's, um, yeah, as Brad says, he's like, it's like organized chaos and things are just flying by your mask and your face and your fins and, you know, trying, trying to, to watch all of it is, is really, he's like, it's wonderful to watch. It's really hard to study. <laughs> so the next time our, uh, so, our listeners are in the Cayman Islands, I guess, then they should, uh, yes. they should go rent a bodysuit and, and I, I'm assuming you can get like a guide or something like that for this. Yeah, so this is something that is just now starting to develop. And in some cases, the location is one that's really accessible. And countries are starting to encourage fishers um, in particular, though other, you know, ecotourism operators are, are jumping on board too, to say, you know, rather than catching these fish and disrupting the spawning behavior and the, the process, let's protect them while they're spawning. Let's close down fishing. And instead, you can earn an income by taking people out to watch. And this has started started to gain some traction. And the idea there is that this is, again, the only time of year that these fish get together to breed. This is it. And if we go and fish while they're trying to reproduce, you know, there's lots of disruption that can happen. There's subtle signaling going on to coordinate these individual bursts. These animals may have a bit of social hierarchy. We're still not sure. So any kind of fishing or interruption where... Certain individuals are being pulled out of the population. It just disrupts that coordination. The other problem is that when you're surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands of fish, it is really hard to really see how much damage you're doing. So, again, like I said, this population off of Little Cayman had about 8,000 fish, and within three years it was down to 4,000. But you know, if you're a fisher and you're looking down there and you're seeing all these fish, it seems like there's plenty. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's tons and every year they keep grouping up. So the ability for us to manage that well is really, really difficult. And we have a absolutely dismal record. We have just pretty much all known spawning aggregations have been hammered really hard. Many have completely have been completely fished out where the fish no longer show up. There's just none left. And um, it's just... You know, um, I like to say, you know, don't come a knocking when the beds are rocking. That phrase holds, <laughs> and, and orgies, orgies like this, or that's it, right? Like, let's just like let them spawn, and then we'll figure out management for the rest of the year because right. we'll know that that next generation is coming. Right. But they think that some tourism and watching and observing some of these um, could could work in some places to help um, provide fishers with alternative income, which is great because. You know, they, they do, many of these fishers have depended on spawning aggregations for a huge, huge portion of their income because it's so lucrative. Uh, so it's hard. It's hard to say we're going to shut them down, but it really is what's, what's needed. Um, so the tourism is, is one, one potential there. Um, so those are the fish. I think people would love that. The other one is coral spawning. Coral spawning is just awesome and it's easy to witness as well. And it's beautiful. It's like being in a snowstorm underwater. <laughs> Um, so we can talk about that if, if you wish, but, um, that would be my, that would be my second vote, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I wish we had had more time to discuss that, uh, because I I actually just uh, visited, uh, Jamaica and got to do some snorkeling. And so I'm, I'm super interested in coral now. So maybe we'll have to get back in touch, uh, with you about that. Uh, but for one last question here uh, on this episode, I, I just wanted to, 
to ask you, I've heard you talk about this in some other shows, just where the idea for Sex in the Sea came from and what you really set out to accomplish with this book. Sure. So successful sex is the heart of sustainability. Uh, when we think about all of the amazing abundance and diversity that exists in the ocean, it all comes from sex. We have to have these animals successfully reproducing in order to have the amazing prolific <laughs> oyster reefs and coral reefs and giant schools of bait fish that feed the giant schools of tuna that then feed us. So it really all does come down to these animals being able to successfully date and mate. <laughs> but the idea sort of came about um, when I was in graduate school and I was seeing some of the declines on coral reefs in particular. And I knew that ocean issues weren't, um, you know, they're not top of mind for m- most of the public. There's a lot of other important stuff where ocean issues are competing with. And so I was looking for a way that would engage folks and be interesting and fun but also be able to tell the message that, you know, we're having an impact in a way that we often don't realize. And I was at a co- cocktail party. <laughs> I was talking with a bunch of friends over some drinks, and we were bemoaning sort of the differences and lack of understanding between guys and girls, basically. And a friend of mine sort of said, oh, you know, I just wish for one day I could be in the body of a guy and know what that was like, like know what they're thinking, know what's going on. And I, being a total nerdy biologist offhand, just was like, I know, if only we could be like parrotfish. <laughs> and, you know, I, got, I was met with sort of this, like, you know, stares, and it got very quiet very quickly. And I said, oh, well, you know, parrotfish can change sex. They start as female, and they turn into males. So, like, they know. They know what it's like. And it was still quiet. <laughs> you know, they, were, they were sort of like, I don't know where you're going with this, Mara. Like, and so I then, you know, went on to explain that shrimp do this, oysters do this. You know, it's a really common strategy. And then I sort of lent into the fact that, you know, imagine how much more complex that makes it for us to try to manage these animals. Because now if you're fishing all the biggest fish, which we tend to like to do, and you're fishing a sex-changing population, you're not only taking out large numbers, but you're also totally skewing the sex ratio, right? Which mm-hmm. makes it really hard for a female to find a date when all the males have just been scooped up. So I was able to have this conversation and people were listening and they were engaged and they were asking me questions. And afterwards, I went to go get another drink at a different part of the house. And I heard someone I had been talking to, this was probably about half an hour later, and someone I had been talking to was relaying that story to somebody else. They were like, did you know fish change sex? Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and I literally, it was like at that moment that I was like, that's it. That's how we can talk about it. Sex. Even if people don't admit it, they're curious about it. And there's so many amazing, wonderful strategies in the ocean that we're just starting to learn about. And it's so critical to sustainability. That's the perfect, perfect way to tell these stories and um, hopefully get more people to be enthralled and inspired by the ocean as, as I am. And uh, also get, get a few, I mean, it's really, the goal is to recruit wonderful minds to help us solve these problems. And I think that that's going to come from more than just the scientists. We need smart business folks and policy folks and artists and, you know, everybody out there um, to help us think through the ways that we can better interact and sustainably manage our seas and hopefully sex in the sea will help uh, yeah help get into the laps of some people who might not otherwise think about it 
So there you have it, the Osadox, the sex life of an ocean bone worm. And thanks once again to uh, Dr. Uh, Mara J. Hart, author of Sex in the Sea, for chatting with us a little bit about her book. Uh, so if you want to get in touch with us, maybe you've seen the Osadax up close and personal. Maybe uh, you've got some fan art that you want to share with us. Maybe some, <laughs> some Osadax fan fiction. Uh, you can always reach out to us on our social accounts, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Uh, sometimes, you know, I like to post like an image of just like what we're working on like a day or two before we uh, record these episodes. Yesterday Yesterday, I, rec- I, I put a picture of an Osadax up, and somebody got it. Somebody did. Somebody oh, wow. got it. Because when yeah. I checked in on it, nobody had guessed it. Yet. Yeah, it was just this morning that I saw somebody nailed it. Like, they knew exactly that it was an Osadax. It wasn't just like, oh, that's a marine worm. They had it. All right. Uh, so, hey, Osadax fans out there, uh, let us know what you think. And uh, hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at Blow the Mind. And where can they reach us the old-fashioned way? Oh, you can reach us via email. That is BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 